Good morning. Uh, some of you know that I'm not, all of us know I'm not Pastor Daniel. That's a good thing to know. Um, if you're visiting, then uh, I'm, of course, just here temporarily till our pastor comes back, filling in, and Lee is going to preach next week. So, yes, yes, so you can pray for Lee this week. He doesn't need it. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so let me tell you a little bit about me. We've been gone for a little bit, and some of you haven't even seen me. So uh, I'm Dan Hilliker. Most of you know my wife, Brenda. She's playing piano this morning. She's on the rotation. She worked with Jason last, when, or last year on Wednesday nights. We've been married 38 years next month. Uh, we have four adult children, all professing faith in Christ with their spouses and serving faithfully in their local churches. All are married. You know Rachel, our daughter, who sang with Carrie this morning. And she's married to Ethan. He's back on the soundboard. He's usually back there. They have a little daughter, Audrey. <laughs> Audrey is their first and our sixth grandchild. So we're uh, just really, really thrilled with all that God has given us. We've been gone for a few weeks. Uh, I had hip surgery in June, and then we took a couple weeks vacation. So that was um, getting stronger. Uh, Brenda and I are both school teachers. She teaches elementary music in Howell, and this year I'll be teaching English for Flint Community Schools. I start this week. Now that you're all aggravated, it's August 1st. <laughs> uh, but that's okay. We're on a year-round schedule, and they break it up. It's still 180 days, and it's a good thing. Uh, I graduated from Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary in 1992. I taught for the Flint Bible Institute on and off for a number of years. And uh, the last two years, Brenda and I have been here at Faith getting grounded, and we're thankful and happy to be serving with all of you. So it's uh, just a delight. So uh, today we'll be looking at John chapter 6. I want to talk about the cost of effective, effective evangelism and more pointedly facing quarrelsome unbelievers with the gospel. Uh, we can obediently and, in, and effectively engage combative unbelievers with the truth about Christ, even though today might not be their day. Okay, I, I know that's a, a big bundle, but years ago, long, long ago, there were two men I worked with. One was Tim, the other was Tom. Tim was my boss at the time. Tom was a co-worker. And as it turned out, I'm just having a spiritual conversation at work and Tim's listening and Tim says, oh yeah, it's fairy tales. It's just fairy tales. Jesus, all that's fairy tales. Nothing to it. And I, I couldn't do anything with him. He's just 
stubborn, nasty, that's all he could say. That was his bridge every time I go back. I couldn't have a conversation with him. Tom, on the other hand, tripped me up in two ways. He asked what I thought were legitimate, sincere questions about Christianity. And that's like saying sick them to a dog. What? You, you're asking me? <laughs> Here we go. Then all he had was a brain twister to uh, tie me up in knots, and I hadn't learned to answer the questions yet. He said this, and I shared this in Bible study weeks ago. If I have to believe to go to heaven, if that's something I do, if I do it, doesn't that make it a work? I thought you were saved by grace and not works. We went back and forth for a minute. He kept coming back to, but if I have to do it, isn't that a work? Isn't that really a contradiction in your gospel? Paul answers that, by the way, in Romans 4, 4 and 5. We aren't going to turn there. But in both of those cases, I had been effective, but I walked away feeling defeated. However, I needed a more accurate self-assessment of both encounters, and God gives us appropriate opportunities, divine appointments that we ought to recognize and then speak the truth of what we know from Scripture about. Jesus told the disciples in Acts 1, they would be witnesses everywhere. Not just you ought to witness, but you would be witnesses and ex I mean, ex by extension, that applies to us also. So if you've ever had a time when you walked away feeling guilty because you said nothing, maybe because the person you were engaged with in a spiritual conversation suddenly turned and became a combatant on you, these are exactly the times that Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3, don't turn there, just listen. We only got a couple of passages we'll look at, and then we'll be right back in John 6. He says in 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16, In your hearts, honor Christ as Lord, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that's in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Put to shame isn't just necessarily, but to repent themselves maybe and come to Christ. Paul tells us to prepare so that we will know how to, at the beginning of Colossians 4, he says, pray for me that I will know how to present the gospel as I ought None of us would doubt that Paul knew the content that he had to present. But he says, I need to present it the way I ought. Pray for me in 5 and 6. 4, Colossians 4, verses 5 and 6. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Now, if you're like me and you've had more than one of these experiences of not having spoken when you should have, 
and are holding on to baggaged guilt, realize that this is part of the growing process. We're developing knowledge of what to say, the wisdom of when to say it, and the courage to follow through, all tailored together. We don't all know and have all the answers, do we? That people will throw at us when all they want to do is fight when we're trying to present the gospel to them or at least initiate a gospel conversation. I heard a story of a, a pastor who, whose house was broken into. His wife woke him up. He went and got a little billy club, you know, one of those tiger bats that they give you. And he goes around the corner, surprise the burglar, whack! Boom, burglar falls down. They got some zip ties, tied him up, tied his ankles, police, ambulance. They all show up. The burglar is uh, aroused and uh, he's rubbing his head. And he says, you know, I broke in because you're a pastor. You're, you're supposed to turn the other cheek. Doesn't the Bible say you're supposed to turn the other cheek? He says, oh, I, I hadn't read that far yet. See, we, we don't all know. We, we are at different stages in our walk. And so you're going to present to people, God's going to bring to your sphere of influence different people from you and from you. And so wherever we are, God's going to use us. And how is he going to use us? But this is part of what effective evangelism is going to cost us. In these situations with contentious counterparts, we do not engage in a, in a verbal fist fight. So as we work through this passage, Jesus is going to tell us why shouting won't work, but we want to keep the conversation going. Otherwise, our conscience won't be clear, our conscience won't be clean, and we might never see any fruit. When was the last time you presented the gospel or began to engage someone in a religious or ethical discussion you hoped would lead to the gospel and in some way your partner in the conversation became agitated or hostile as you replay that in your mind if you haven't already done so take your device and turn to john 6 uh, page 891 in your thicker bible or 837 in the thinner one if it's not your own let me begin by saying that in the nature of the case, presenting the gospel is confrontational inherently. Think about it. We're asking people to change their minds about their sin. We're asking them to change their minds about what can be done about it. Sometimes with unbelievers, they, they don't like that. Sometimes they don't like it more than at other times. In any case, it was confrontational for Jesus, for the apostles, for the early church, and it'll be confrontational for us. All right, chapter 6 begins with the feeding of the 5,000. This miracle is the one that's recorded in all four Gospels, so it's really important. I'll read if you'll follow along. After this, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain and there sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? 
He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii. Okay, in our time, that's like January to August 25th, if you're working six days a week. 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in that place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he'd given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted, when they'd eaten their fill, he told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets. Who do you think those 12 baskets were for? Right, right. And people saw the sign that he'd done. They said, this is indeed the prophet who's to come into the world. What does the miracle mean? All right, we aren't going to spend a lot of time there because we've got other concerns. But in verse 14, some saw it as the fulfillment of prophecy. But they extended that because if verse 14 is true, then he's the anointed one. He's the fulfillment of prophecy. So verse 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and make him king by force, take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So that night, the disciples and Jesus later on go across to Capernaum without the crowd's knowledge. This is another miracle, Jesus walking on the water. But John doesn't dwell on this. 16 through 21, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, started across the sea to Capernaum. Now it was dark. And Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea began, became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they rode about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at, you got to see, in at least 1 through 21, realize that miracles alone will not be enough to convince most people of the truth of the gospel. Look, if miracles alone were enough to convince people of the truth of the gospel, then they could go from being dead to being alive just by seeing the miracle. But as believers... We have the Spirit of God living within us, and we look at miracles throughout the Bible, and we still continue to sin. We still continue in, in some rebellion and, and putting, killing our flesh. And if, if it's that much of a struggle for us, how can we expect an unbeliever to do that just by seeing a miracle alone? So why did he do the miracle? Why did John record it? You don't have to turn there, but at the end of chapter 20, the last two verses, verse 30 and 31, John tells us his purpose for writing this book, the whole book, was evangelistic. And knowing the purpose for writing any book is important. How much more with scripture? Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. 
but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John tells us the purpose for writing is evangelistic. All right, as we go back to John 6 for a moment, consider the miracle in chapter 2, turning the water to wine. His conversation with Nicodemus in chapter 3, his encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well, and after healing the man at the pool of Bethesda in chapter 5, knowing that John's purpose is evangelistic, this is one reason why we give out gospels of John to, to unbelievers, sometimes as a tract all by themselves. But it's also instructive to us as believers, knowing how to respond to the lost and how the lost might respond to us in our efforts to evangelize because we are witnesses. All right, verse 22 through 27, on the next day, and here it comes, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw there had been only one boat there, and Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they'd eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd, people are talking, saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them. And notice how he answers them. 4.30? No, he doesn't say that. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for food that perishes, but work for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. So the people began to pursue Jesus after they'd figured out where he'd gone. So now there's an opportunity on the way to talk to the masses about the miracle because this miracle needs accurate interpretation. The opportunities, the means, the motives of those who respond and the tactics, the opportunities we use to negotiate the ways we present the gospel are all important. Look, we, we plant, we water, sometimes we harvest. We don't know the stage the individual might be at when we present the gospel to them or when we begin to talk about these things. But presenting the gospel is always confrontational. Tilling, planting, weeding, watering, things get muddy. But when the time for harvest comes, maybe that's the time when the confrontation dies down. Unbelievers finally are awakened by the Spirit and surrender to Jesus rather than fight against him. Just like when he awakened us to the truth and we surrender to Christ, those days happened for us, even though you might not be able to pinpoint it. And it'll happen for those we present the gospel to as well. But today in John 6, it's not going to be that kind of harvest day. Jesus confronts this group in verse 26 because they've come to him for the wrong reasons. 
this crowd of pursuers needs to know the right reasons to come to him. Some of the people that we rub shoulders with, they're coming to Christ for the wrong reasons too. They're coming to Christ as another get-rich-quick scheme. They're looking at finding answers to other problems that they have besides the ones that Jesus came to solve. He tells them, don't work for food that will fill their stomachs only, but to work for food that will produce eternal life. And who pays? The Son of Man. So how can we confront those who come to Christ for the wrong reasons? I remember hearing about a young man who came forward during an evangelistic meeting. A little while longer, his friend came up with him. First young man looked at him and said, why are you here? Why did you come? He said, well, I, I came because you came. And the first young man said, that's the wrong reason. You have to do business with Jesus on your own. Jesus responds to these people who come for the wrong reasons by telling them the right reasons. But he also says that the wrong reason to come is unbelief. So in the same way, we may have people who've made a profession of faith, but they've come for the wrong reasons. They've made a profession for the wrong reason. Look at verse 28 through 34. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it's written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Look at that. He claims to have come down from heaven. He's going to do that at least seven times in this passage. And gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Well, look, sometimes, sometimes people only really want an argument when we're presenting the gospel. Our, I mean, our presenting the gospel is confrontational, but all they want to do is argue. Jesus says he's the one God sent to give eternal life, and committing your life to this truth is the work God performs. God does that work in us, to produce that. This is baffling. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness as it's written. He gave them the bread from heaven to eat. Jesus doesn't ask them, but we're going to ask them this question. Were you not here yesterday? There were 5,000 men, never mind the women and children. And they were fed. What more do you want? But Jesus does not do that. I'm dumb enough to do that. He presents the truth to them of who he is. The cross is still a year away. 
in John 6. It's another year till Jesus dies on the cross. They tell, he tells them, I'm sent by the Father. The Father has approved me. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you, you have seen me and yet do not believe. Notice, he confronts them again with their unbelief. He calls it unbelief because of their wrong reasons to track him down. But he doesn't pummel them with it. It doesn't matter what sort of wrong reason it is. But if there are wrong reasons to come to Christ, then there's a right reason or right reasons. He teaches them. He's explaining to them. He's not badgering them. In the same way for us, as we lovingly confront those God brings to us, God's given some people to us to initiate a conversation with. And if they have the wrong motives or the wrong reasons for coming to Christ, other than to rescue them from sin, then they have to be confronted too. Once again, beginning at verse 37, Jesus explains without disputing. He's confrontational, but it's not a verbal fistfight. Matthew 23 is a verbal fistfight. That's a judgment passage, but not here. 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I want, I want to stop you at verse 38 for a second. Notice, Jesus is talking about the relationship of his will and the will of the Father. Let me ask you a question. If I ask you, what is God's will for Jesus, what would you say? Oh, come on, that's too broad. What would you say? To obey the will of the Father? Mm -hmm. Do like this, yes. To perform miracles? Sure. To go to the cross? Yep, next year in the text. To pay for sin on the cross? Absolutely. To be raised from the dead? Yes, to start the church. Yes, these are all true, but in this text, Jesus tells us and them. Sorry, I don't mean to shout. The will of the Father in the next verse. Look at verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Okay. I wasn't going to do this, but now I am. Circle it or highlight it. Circle nothing and circle all. And then draw lines to nothing, to all, and to it. Because those are the same groups. And he's saying, in God's plan, let's take it backwards. I'm going to raise up on the last day the entire group of those that the Father has given me. Now, we don't know who's going to wind up in glory and who's not going to wind up in glory. But we know 
because Jesus preached more about hell than everyone else in Scripture combined. But Jesus guarantees that everyone who comes to him, he will raise up on the last day. And he will never cast them out. This is unbelievable. So, 35 through 40, when God gives us the opportunity to explain salvation ideas with people, we have to include the idea. We must include the idea that trusting Christ gives them a certain destiny, expecting a future glorious hope. Not just forgiveness of sins, but everything that, that comes along with that afterwards. So Jesus repeats the idea in verse 40, twice more in chapter 7 of raising all believers on the last day. If anyone commits his life to Christ, Jesus secures that believer to a certain eternal future glorious hope of resurrection. I, I don't know. What, what do you say? You're, you're raised to glory or raised to damnation? Oh my goodness, and he promises glory. But today in Capernaum, things are not going to be that easy because there's a cost to effective evangelism. Verse 41, notice how many times he talks about himself and his divine origin in this part. And this is what we need to share with people when they're having problems understanding truth about Christ, even before we have a chance to get to the cross, if the situation works out that way and they're being argumentative. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. There you go. He said, they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say I have come down from heaven, Jesus answered them. Do not grumble among yourselves. See, he's not pounding on them. No, and we shouldn't pound. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me, not that anyone seen the Father except he who's come from God. Comment from John to help us. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I'm the bread of life. What a claim. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread. Again, that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I'm the bread of life that came down from heaven. This metaphor just goes on and on. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. There is a hint at the cross next year in Jerusalem. But he doesn't explain it anymore. So how can we confront the lost who chase Jesus for the wrong reasons when all they want to do is argue? Let's recap. Jesus has told them of his divine origin at least seven times. He is God come in the flesh, perform miracles to back it up. 
repulsed public attempts to force him to be king, spoken gently with those who challenged his miracles and offered hope of the resurrection by his own hand. But some are still arguing with him. We have, beloved, we have all of this in the scripture for us. So we need not be unprepared for how to respond. And we need to keep these things in mind. People will continue to feel the need to argue with us as we present the truth of Christ to them. So don't be surprised when it occurs. I, I have these issues at, at school. There are teachers and students that come to me with questions and I have to present answers to them. Then I ask them questions. But we can't be surprised when these things happen. When they do, whatever the need is at the time, it gives them pause to argue. We want to remember to lead them to the truth of the gospel. If you, if you find you got yourself sidetracked, or if you've led them that far along in your conversation, talked about judgment, and what are you going to do? Because we all have a sin problem. And God demands righteousness and the only option after we face judgment is to be right with God. So we can't argue with them. That'll just push them away more. But we need to draw them in. That's what Jesus did at this point. There's a time, but not in John 6. Nothing else will help their true need first of understanding the gospel. But Jesus doesn't answer every challenge. Believers have a certain destiny of an eternal future glorious hope in Jesus. And I've heard testimony after testimony through the years of people who grew up in church. They heard the gospel. It didn't make sense to them until they were adults. Some days sitting and there, sitting next to you one day on that day, hearing the same sermon, someone responded to the work, the Spirit of God. I don't know. The, it was the truth of Scripture. They heard the gospel, but it was not your day yet. But that day did come, and you realized your sin had stained you beyond your own ability to help yourself, like Paul said in Ephesians 2, we were dead in our transgressions and sins. And just as we sing like Lazarus in John 11, Jesus spoke, called for us. The Spirit energized our dead spirits, and we too walked right out of that grave. In 41 and 42, the crowds continued to argue with him about what he said about his divine origin. Well, how did they explain the miracle? Jesus says in chapter 5, if they've been admitting to Christ based on what you know about him. Sometimes it's difficult, or our difficulty, is that we're not sure about what exactly we need to present to people. We say gospel, 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 gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. 
just listen, but write it down. Write down the reference if you don't know. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's it. That's the gospel. It's not all the miracles. It's not everything else. It's just that. Saying Jesus died is history. Saying Jesus died for our sins is theology. And the for our sins part is the part that gives unbelievers the greatest struggle. Because sin causes us to be in rebellion against God and we deny it. Because we don't believe we're sinners. We just make mistakes. It's like a math problem. We try to compare ourselves by others. Well, I'm almost as good as Billy Graham or Mother Teresa to make our consciences let us alone. Or we try, we try to establish our own set of commandments that we could live up to, even on our own terms, so we aren't our own biggest hypocrites. Look at verse 44 for how Jesus responds. He tells them the truth. He's not trying to win friends and influence people. We might, like Jesus, say something simple like, when God calls you, you will come. Before we go too far from this verse, do turn over to John 14 just for a minute. The night Jesus is going to be arrested, Jesus tells the disciples not to be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Let not your hearts be troubled. I'm going away in my father's room or many mansions. I'm going away to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be there also. And Thomas says, time out, Lord. We don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus says, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Okay, now, here's what we need to see. If I read it right, the principle is this. No one comes to the Father except by the Son. But in John 6, Jesus says, No one comes to the Son but by the Father. They're parallel. It's not craziness. The Father and the Son work together to secure the salvation of the unbeliever. But it gets better. Believers are encouraged by this because the unbeliever will likely begin to argue more. This is an exclusive claim. Jesus doesn't compromise on this, and we won't either. But watch in this passage how the situation looks to get worse. Things will not turn out today in John 6 in Capernaum like they did in Samaria two chapters before. 52, then the Jews, 
I'm sorry, the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. This metaphor is just so that they know he's the source of life. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. There it is again. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. So we want to go through 65 here. All the Trinity is at work in securing the salvation of everyone who believes, not just the Father, not just the Son. When you present the gospel, the Spirit of God is working through you at the Father's behest to present Christ and exalt Christ, and that glorifies the Father. And the Spirit of God isn't looking for any credit. This group continues to argue with, but not now with Jesus, but with one another without seeming to get the point. And notice that they're in the synagogue now where the power structure is up north of Jerusalem. How do we respond when these aggressive challenges Keep coming. What do you do? I just can't get through to him. And, and he, he's arguing all the time. Yesterday at men's Bible study, one man said, I have this fellow who just argues all the time. Every time we're together, he's arguing and arguing and arguing. What do we do? John 6, let him come. Jesus keeps the conversation going. If he stops, how will they ever know the truth? since it's not inside them. He says, this is the case because the Old Testament speaks about him. So those who know the scriptures are those who might be taught by the Father and all those the Father sends will come to Christ. He makes the promise of the last day resurrection again. He applies the metaphor of himself again as the bread from heaven. He extends it even though they keep arguing. And he keeps pressing their issue about food. They're wanting to have their stomach satisfied. And Jesus continues with this idea of food as a thread all through his discussion. Drinking blood is forbidden in Leviticus. Cannibalism, that's judgment. The Jews in Capernaum should have known better. But Jesus keeps the metaphor going. So whatever you're talking about when you're engaged with your friend who's being argumentative, whatever the topic might be, keep going with that topic. Even the so-called hot buttons. And just get up on your treadmill and keep running with your friend. Keep talking the way you're talking. And this last thought is the final complaint. 60, when many of his disciples heard this, 
They said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling, it's the third time about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. They said, Jesus, we can't listen to this anymore. It's too harsh. I don't know whether a PowerPoint would have helped. But he challenges the disciples with the same challenge brought to him concerning his divine origin. Verse 63 is the focus for us for just a moment since we have to see and understand that not only are the Father and the Son working together to secure the salvation of everyone as well, a greater scope than just the 12 are here in verse 65. He reiterates the exclusive work of the Father that he mentioned in 44. But now we have verse 66. It's interesting that John 6, 66 is the reference. And after this, many of his disciples turned away and no longer followed him. There they go. All gone. Who's left? Twelve. And he turns to the twelve and says, do you not want to go away as well? Does it sound like he's trying to win friends and influence people? You can imagine the disciples, Lord, there's a better way. The cost of effective evangelism means that sometimes you'll lose the opportunity to go on ministering in a particular sphere of influence. Sometimes anymore. And that can even be effective not because there's a conversion, but because you're faithful. Because you're faithful. So, let me finish. 68, 69. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. All right. When people come to Christ, allegedly, with the wrong motives, that's one thing. But then to handle their argumentation afterwards. Only he had the words of eternal life. And just as you came to Christ at the right time, when the Holy Spirit of God turned the lights on in your otherwise dead, sinful estate, 
demolishing all your arguments and taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. God the Father will do the same through you as you commit to engaging those around you who might be coming to Jesus for the wrong reasons by engaging them with the truth about our glorious Savior. Let's pray.